0: Well, good morning, Trinity Church. Great to see your smiling faces in worship here this morning. Some of us here are in mourning over the team scores last night. You think I'm talking about the Jayhawks and Pastor Jason. No, I'm talking about Ken Farson and the Purdue fans who lost to Farley Dick, and what? <laughs> yeah, Susan Thompson is here. There are those who want to join the Grief Share group this week, okay, they're there. They're there. So, is there good news even for us here this morning who may have lost last night? Yes. As we travel with Jesus through Mark's eyes and ears and pen during this sermon series, we have witnessed him opening a very public ministry in the city of Capernaum. From day one, he is immediately preaching the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom and faith and repentance. And Mark spares. Um, Quite a few details. He is lighter on the details compared to the other gospel writers, but he steps into this ministry with Jesus, showing the activity of demons being cast out, Um, healings reported all over, people are flocking in, uh, miracles leaving them hungry for more. This is what's happened in chapter 1 in Capernaum. And then at the end of the chapter, just to get a little break from the frenzy, he and the disciples go out to Galilee for a little while. And now when we come back to chapter 2, where Drew just read, they're back in Capernaum. He's ready to begin again here. One author labels these 12 verses as the Capernaum Caper. And so I've borrowed that particular title. I don't know how many of you remember that movie from decades ago, The Sting with Paul Newman and yeah Robert Redford and in the sting they, they play this couple of big time con artists setting the stage in the late 30's to bilk a New York mobster out of a half a million dollars and so this movie moves from scene to scene as all the characters and the staging is set and it's all put to the ragtime music of Scott Joplin which our son learned to play as a young pianist and that's why I remember the movie So this elaborate steam is being developed, and we have to wonder as we go to Mark's account. As Jesus is well aware of the cast of characters that are gathered here around Peter's home, the Messiah has set the stage, he's determining the script, and there's a certain amount of sting that will come to some there in his message as well as the reality that he presents. So let's note the cast that is present in this drama. First we have the crowd. The crowd. The crowd is spilling over. They're pressed against one another like sardines. They're, it's so large in number they can't even get in the door of the house. They hear and witness the entire exchange. Jesus healing of the paralytic. And in conclusion, Mark points out in verse 12 that they gave God the glory. We've never seen anything like this. Jesus is God. He's healing. He's pronouncing forgiveness of sins. And seeing him for who he is points the people to God it is glorious next we have the Pharisees there is standing room only but I don't know if you noticed in verse 6 they are seated oh yeah Uh uh-huh Luke's account said they'd come from every village in Galilee from Judea and Jerusalem we also know from scripture that they loved to fly first class wherever they went they loved the chief seats Often choosing those seats when they're in public together with others and expecting that kind of treatment. So we might picture these scribes and Pharisees in the front row seats, critical eyes, squinting, kind of stroking their beards, just waiting for this young rabbi to put his foot in his mouth somehow. The atmosphere is electric. It's supercharged. Something big is about to happen again. And then we have these four friends. We don't even know their names, but we read of their energetic faith that sought to help out a friend at any cost. How often might they have already carried him to other places because of his condition, helping him out? They don't know how long Jesus is going to stay in town this time in Capernaum, so they're desperate to get their friend to him. And blocked by the crowds, they try some drastic measures, climbing under the roof of the home to get in. Finally, we have the paralytic. A man Jesus addresses as son. He's drawn into an acceptance and a proclamation that we're not sure he's even asked for. The same word son is often used tenderly and translated as child in the New Testament. It carries with it this idea of tenderness, acceptance. We note the man doesn't ask for Jesus' healing, at least, Mark doesn't record any question. And there's no evidence he's operating under any diminished mental capacity. So surely he knows why his friends have gone to such lengths to get him there in front of Jesus. He doesn't offer the sinner's prayer. And from the text, new indication is given that he asked Jesus for forgiveness. Though Jesus knows his need as well as he knows ours. Before we hear what Jesus speaks... Let's not miss the Jewishness of the people and the culture and the times, what's going on here. If this man were looking for healing and for his sins to be forgiven, or at least healing, provisions for healing have been given in the old covenant. The individual, according to Leviticus chapters 4 through 6, would present a sin offering as the law required. The high priest would then give him the assurance of forgiveness after the ritual sacrifice had been performed. Leading into Leviticus chapter 5. God is the one who forgave sins. And after this ritual sacrifice, this assurance would be given under the Mosaic Covenant. It required a sacrifice in the temple. It required the priesthood to be involved. It required the person to bring a sacrificial offering and then for it to be accepted. Maybe he's been to the temple already. We don't know. Again, Mark spares details. Maybe he's been two or three times. We don't know what his history is. All we know is that he's here with his friends and he's now in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is not in the temple. Jesus is not of the Aaronic descent of the priesthood. No sacrifice has been offered other than the man's presence. And so this makes his statement scandalous. Even blasphemous in the ears and in the eyes of the religious authorities that are sitting there. And then we have Jesus. He's teaching again, as we read in verse 2, preaching the word to them as he has been about the good news of the kingdom, about faith and about repentance. Some in Capernaum would believe him. Others would doubt and deny. In one of the other gospel writers, there's a warning given to Capernaum because they weren't responding. Not everybody believed while Jesus was with them. No sacrifice has been offered, but Jesus speaks to this man He's calm. He's the reason that all of them are there. He's unperturbed. He's living in the confidence and reliance on his Father and the Spirit moment to moment and day to day. This is altogether the Savior Mark wants us to meet and to know in his actions, in his words. One who takes no prisoners but frees them all. One who speaks and it is done. The Alpha and the Omega. One who discerns the inner thoughts of the heart and cuts to the chase. One who has come to heal and forgive. And he will do just that. Houses of that day were usually made of flat roofs. A set of stairs ran up the side of the house, allowing access to the roof, much like we might use an upstairs deck today. Roofs were usually constructed by laying timbers across the roof of the house first then the timbers were covered by layers of branches and then the branches would have either clay tiles or a thick layer of mud rolled, pressed and dried so that it became waterproof it was not unusual during a rain to see a little bit of grass growing on the roofs so Jesus as he's teaching they hear this noise this scrambling and scraping and digging above their heads bits of dried mud and debris begin to fall on them Likely interrupting his teaching moment. We've had bats in our belfry here during sermons before. If you hear a squirrel scratching above, let's stay with it. Stay with it. But this would have been quite disruptive. This would have just stopped everything. for What is going on? Suddenly light breaks through. And then this man on some kind of a carrying hammock is lowered down right in front of Jesus. I know if it's Simon's house, what is Simon thinking? Knowing Simon from the scriptures, what is he saying? Lord, excuse me, but I'm not sure my homeowner's insurance will cover this. You know, this is real for those who are gathered as that man is set down in front of Jesus. He sees their faith, the men who lower him. Now, the common reformed view of any faith that we possess is that faith in itself is a gift from God as we heard in the opening prayer any goodness we experience any real goodness comes from God Ephesians 2 and verse 8 for by grace you are saved through faith and this is not your own doing it's the gift of God of ourselves all we have to offer God is unbelief in fact our deadness Jesus then speaks to this paralytic And says something that this man didn't expect. His friends didn't expect. The crowd didn't expect. And the Pharisees certainly didn't expect. Son, your sins are forgiven. And with that pronouncement, the static electricity that had been building in the room was released like a bolt of lightning. How can this man say this? Doubts and objections pulsate through their minds. All who are present are wondering how this could be as well. And so Jesus answers their, subject, their objections with another question, which has been a subject of debate for 2,000 years. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? I admire and use the work of R. Kent Hughes, um, an author that Jason has introduced me to over the years, he writes, Forgiveness was a far greater work, for it cost Christ his very life. Why did Christ ask this? Many Bible scholars think the man may very well have been a paralytic due to some personal or imagined sin that the audience carries in their view of him. They, like us, tend to look for cause and effect even as our medical community does today with science. Modern science can verify that paralysis and many other diseases can have a moral basis. There is a cause and effect in our lives. Some of the things we do bring hazardous results to the body. No doubt about it. Was there a direct tie to this man's condition that those present knew about that we don't? I don't know. Again, you'll have to ask Jason after services. <laughs> He's the one to sign me this topic, so I'm just telling you what I don't know, okay? But regardless of the men's... And in John's gospel, of course, there's a man born blind, and Jesus said, don't be looking for particular sins in his parents' lineage or in his life. This was done so that the work of God could be made manifest. There was a reason for that in that place. I don't know what this man's history is. We do know... The tendency of human nature to judge others, ah, they're getting what they deserve. They're getting what they deserve. But we don't know what this man's previous life was like. If this was genetic, if it was caused by some accident, or if there were mistakes and sins in his life that had a direct consequence in his flesh. But regardless of his physical condition, condition, Jesus knew that his greatest need was the forgiveness of sin. Restoration of his soul. Before we spend more time on that question, let me ask a couple of important questions to all of us. How many of you have been physically healed of an infirmity during your lifetime? Okay, you've got to put your hand up or you'd be dead, okay? <laughs> we'll figure this out very quickly. If I'm not healed, I'm gone, right? Now, for some of you, it may have been as simple as, a toothache and you went to the dentist and thankfully the infection wasn't bad. For others you can think of a surgery or a cancer that there is no explanation. It just disappeared. I talked to a woman yesterday who said something simple like a wart that was on her hand at 12 years old went away in a day and I doubted. <laughs> Physically I doubted but she told me her testimony so why should I doubt? I know that I was healed at 12 years old of a of a, of a boil and a blood infection that started creeping up my leg from my knee. And, um, you know, yeah, you can go to the doctor and it's still happening and antibiotics aren't kicking it, so the church prayed about it and an elder came and laid hands on me. Other elders have tried to lay hands on me over the years, but for different reasons. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm here, I'm healed. And at 12, to me, that was a deep lesson as a young, not even teenager, that God heals and we call on him when we're sick. And he answers. But we also know some of us will live to 99 and a half. Like Betty McAllister, sister in Christ here in Trinity who died last week. Others of family and friends die in their 50s. Leaving children and a wife. Um, last month Scott and Tricia texted asking for prayers as her brother-in-law Lee who was thought to have just a stomach bug, ended up having liver failure and was gone in a matter of what, just a few weeks? Ago. Of course, we all prayed and we looked to God for healing. And I appreciate what, what Trish and Scott wrote back. God chose to heal Lee completely instead of partially when he passed. We pray for those inside and outside our congregation. We have experienced saying goodbye to uh, quite a few saints here recently, and you have commented on that. So returning now to Jesus' answer that challenges the Pharisees, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Has anyone seen this man recently in worship? No, we haven't. He was healed miraculously, instantaneously. But he also died physically. As all of us do, it's appointed unto all men once to die. Healings are a sign of the Savior's lordship, of his sovereignty over created life. He is our healer. He was our healer. He will be our healer. His love and his grace and his mercy is present in our lives but the continued healing of our physical body is not God's ultimate plan even the healthy of us I heard um, this morning on one of those NPR programs growing bolder or something I listen to more of those as I get older you know Mike Fremont is a hundred years old today I know I heard his voice on the radio he won some kind of marathon at 90 in 2012 he he does push-ups every morning if I can do one next week, I'll be, I'll be happy. He eats vegetables and soups and whole grains and nuts, no meat and no dairy. What kind of men's breakfast would that be? <laughs> I mean, is that really living? <laughs> we can answer that question later. It's 100 years old, but he too will die. Paul said, if we have hope in this life only, we are all men most miserable. For the perishable must be clothed with the imperishable. Must be, must be. God heals, and yet our, he allows our bodies to deteriorate until we breathe our last. Did he pronounce the forgiveness first in order to trap the Pharisees? With the implications of the healing he was about to perform, it certainly seems that he set them up for that sting Jesus has not pronounced the forgiveness of sin to any other individual yet in his healing. And the only other time to my memory that I could find it is when he spoke those words to a sinful woman who was anointing Jesus' feet with an alabaster jar of perfume. And guess what? Once again, it was in the presence of a Pharisee when he was invited to his home for dinner. He looked at the woman and said, Your sins are forgiven. How that stung the religious authorities. Jesus' invisible miracle of pronouncing his sins forgiven was manifest in the visible miracle of the healing. Preaching from this text, Charles Spurgeon wrote of the healed man, I think I see him. He sets one foot down to God's glory. He plants the other to the same note. He walks to God's glory. He carries his bed to God's glory. He moved his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks, he shouts, he sings. He leaps to the glory of God. Glory is perceived here as the invisible works of God made beautifully visible in the physical healing." God is the only true source of glory. He doesn't want his people looking for love or glory in all the wrong places or to give glory to the creation above the creator. Jesus, as God who entered time and space, can speak for God who is outside of time and space. Jesus spoke those words, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic, before he died on the cross and said, it is finished. Hmm. Okay. God is timeless, isn't he? There's something going on here that they don't fully perceive yet either. And so we fight with our subjective perception of reality while the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in the objective truth of who He is. When God is glorified, He makes the invisible characteristics of Himself beautifully visible. And the Son is the perfect, complete, and glorious fullness of God in human form. He made us in a way for us to see his glory even as we stand in his grace awaiting future glory as Paul would write in the fifth chapter of Romans speaking earnestly to us as a trained rabbi using the language of our salvation which Peter said once in a while people stumble on some of the things that Paul writes about are a little bit deep and they are But Paul speaks of a work in Christ that takes us from the forgiveness of our sin all the way to our final glory. He describes this faith journey in three tenses or tones as past, present, and future. And he intersperses them between the verses here of Romans 5. He takes us from being dead in our sins to being fully alive in Christ forever. From the deconstruction process all the way to the final reveal of the project he's taken on. Reading from Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Past. And that God has shown his love for us while we're still sinners. Verse 8. Present in this grace in which we stand. Future. Glory unto glory. Still coming. Still coming. But a part of that glory is present with us here and now. Sometimes our eyes of flesh being more subjective. We perceive reality slightly different than it is. Because Paul speaks to us of our real life being hidden in Christ. So timing affects our human perception. Whether I'm feeling good or feeling bad affects my perception. I don't know about yours. You know, I've, I've, I've said the ugliest things when I'm overtired and not feeling well. I don't know about you. A fast runner is seen in his fullest glory as he crosses the finish line and steps in to receive the trophy. Now, he was the fastest runner on that particular day in that particular race before it ever started, but he's not seen to be the fastest runner until he crosses the finish line in glory. And of course, his skills have been honed through sweat, perspiration, aching muscles and joints, miles of practice, exhaustion as a runner will do, hitting the wall, finding a second wind, pushing through. He's also known the disappointment of lost races along this path to a glorious trophy. Now we're reminded that the race doesn't always go to the swiftest and the fastest. Boy, we were reminded of that last night when God's hand's in it. But you need to remember, the author of Ecclesiastes who wrote that was on a pretty big downer. There's no hope for man, he's just like the animals. He dies and that's it, forget it, it's over. So in in, in that wisdom book, we hear the truth of a man groaning against the reality of the brevity and the uselessness of life. But God can make the unswift swift, can't he? He can make the dead live. He can make the sick whole. Though we live boasting in the hope of glory, which it's God's alone to give, we also share in a glory marked by suffering and endurance and character that produces hope. And so Paul continues here in verse 3 of chapter 5 in Romans, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us as other versions render it. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Yes, because it's no longer working shame, but leading to glory. God's plan and purpose for us, trusting Him through the process of sanctification Paul speaks of God's continuing work in us in comparative terms to get bigger and better here in verse 9. Much more surely then, much more than this, now that we've been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God? For if while we were still sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Paul goes on almost like a late-night infomercial host, but wait, there's more! He just keeps building it from glory to glory. An Anglican commentator from from the 1600s by the name of John Trapp, who wrote a five-volume work still available to us, comments on Paul's use of much more than here. He says, It is a greater work of God to bring men to grace Than being in a state of grace to bring them to glory because sin is far more distant from grace than grace is from glory. thought it was an interesting quote in light of the way Jesus used the physical healing to point to what no one but God could do. It also helps us have confidence in our present standing in grace. He's with us. He's not far from us. As Paul writes there in Romans 5, he's not only justified us, he's reconciled us. That means you're not just forensically okay with God. You are now son, daughter, cherished, redeemed, part of the bigger family, adopted, cared for, loved, friend of God. If the man in Mark 2 wasn't paralyzed, would he have ever come To have his sins forgiven. Another question to ask of ourselves. So often. And this is good. That we ask questions of ourselves in the text. When we're reading it. They certainly had questions when they heard it. But Jesus is the ultimate answer. Friends maybe the weight and trial of what you're walking through. Maybe the loss of someone near and dear to you. Maybe sitting here with an illness right now. Knowing that it could be life threatening maybe tempting us to doubt, throw us into fear or panic. This could be the very thing that God has ordained to bring us to Himself and save us from our most serious problem. And that is sin that we don't allow Him to graciously deal with. He actually loves us. He has reconciled us. Now I call you friends. Mark as well as Paul present us with a Savior whose great love and great power to finish what he's begun in us, can overcome all our objections, all our shortfalls, all our trials, and our afflictions, sickness included. Our salvation is forward-moving in Jesus. Its telos, its aim, is glorious. Let's pray about that. Lord God, we thank you and you alone for the forgiveness of sin. You've given us a personal Savior to do just that. May we accept that forgiveness and your grace and the faith that's a gift from you and know that our standing in this grace is sure, that it's transformative from the inside out. For we know that the outside man is perishing. Even as you bring your creation in each of us to a permanent and full glory. Thank you for being our healer. Thank you for being our Savior now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: I wonder if, um, before we give the benediction, as Steve heads out, if you are appreciative of Steve's ministry here at Trinity over the last, what, 14, 15 years. I want you to say thank you to Steve and um, the way he cares for us, the way he points us to Jesus and his ministry. And so he'll be standing out there. But I just wonder um, if we just want to go into a time of prayer. And I was just thinking how many times that you might find yourself there in the story. And so maybe you're the Pharisee that's maybe on the front row and you're sitting and you're not really participating and your heart's a little hard the season of life or maybe you're the one of the friends in the story one of those four friends that um, you know you have someone in your life that you need to bring to Jesus maybe you're doing that but maybe you just want to say Lord help me to be that kind of friend Um, or maybe you're the paralytic and you're just saying you know I need that healing I need forgiveness I've messed up again Um, And I just need to be laid in front of Jesus' feet. And So whatever that is, wherever you are in that story that uh, Pastor Steve has laid out so well for us this morning, I just wonder if we want to go into a time of prayer. And Maybe it's a confession. Maybe it's a petition. Maybe it's simply an adoration for what God has done in your life. And so we just want to continue to be a praying church. So, uh, would you bow your heads and we'll, we'll pray and then we'll. Father, hear our prayers. Father, we thank you that wherever we are in that story that you step into our lives, oh Jesus. You step into our lives with words that we didn't even know. Father, even if we're sort of the Pharisees and we become distant from you these days, Lord, that you know what's in our hearts. Father, you draw us to yourself. Father, we thank you for those four friends. Lord, we pray that our community would increasingly be like those four men that uh, bring as a community folks to sit at Jesus' feet. Father, for us who feel like the paralytic, Lord, that uh, we've blown it again. We need forgiveness. We need a touch. We need your healing, Lord. We we thank you that, Jesus, you are there for us. Lord, hear our prayers even as we speak them from the pews, just maybe even a sentence prayer. Lord, we know that congregation that prays puts a smile on your face. And so, Lord, hear our prayers even today.